Good to be with you. And now for something a little different. This story has sort of flown under the radar in other media, but we have followed up on it and we've been fortunate enough to have a chat with one of the world's leading authorities on the Orthodox Christian churches. That's Metropolitan Carlistos Ware. He's based in Oxford in the UK. He has written, published and taught worldwide on the nature of Orthodox Christian churches. He's the go-to man. And in just over a week, many, many hundreds of Orthodox bishops from 20 or so different nationalities, including our country, will be meeting in Crete. It is the very first worldwide meeting of Orthodox bishops in over 1,200 years. Maybe you could imagine it a little bit like Vatican Council II, but for the Orthodox churches. Carlos Dos Ware explains the significance of this meeting. The last ecumenical council met in 787. Yes, we Orthodox have had various important councils, but we haven't had a pan-Orthodox council since 787 representing the whole of our church and for which we've been planning for nearly a century. Uh, Just to give the listener who may not be very familiar with uh, orthodoxy a sense of who's going to be there and the spread of this, the churches that are coming, I looked through and I can see the Church of Constantinople where the ecumenical patriarch, the first among equals of the Orthodox Church will be there, the Church of Alexandria, of Antioch, of Russia, of Georgia, of Serbia. It's such an international gathering, isn't it? Indeed, and more churches than you've mentioned, Romania and Bulgaria, Antioch. Yes, the Orthodox family of churches 14 is the usual number given, each of them self-governing, yet they share the same faith and they are in full Eucharistic communion with one another. It's quite unlike the Roman Church in in the sense that there is no Pope who's in charge. It's like a federation almost of bishops who are equals. Is, Is that a correct understanding? That would be a correct understanding, but Constantinople led by the ecumenical patriarch, uh, enjoys a position uh, first in honour. But the patriarch of Constantinople doesn't have power of jurisdiction over the whole church. The current ecumenical patriarch is Bartholomeus, and I've been lucky enough to be in Sydney when he celebrated the Divine Liturgy. And I'd like to start with his diocese and his jurisdiction just to give a sense of what orthodoxy is facing and why this great gathering of bishops is coming together. Because where he sits in Istanbul, traditionally called Constantinople, of course, by Christians, but Istanbul, he is in a most unusual situation politically and socially himself, isn't he? Yes, there are now very few orthodox Christians left in Turkey. Just a few thousand Orthodox Christians left in Constantinople. The ecumenical patriarch also has jurisdiction over parts of Greece, particularly Crete and the Dodecanese, and of all the Greek Orthodox Christians within the diaspora, the Western world where there are no established traditional Orthodox churches. So his flock amounts to several million. So Australia would be among those, I think. That's right. He would not have a charge of all the Orthodox in Australia, but all the Greek Orthodox would come under him. 
Now, because he lives in Constantinople, in, in, in Istanbul, the history there is, as you know, a rich and long one, the centre of the old Eastern Roman Empire, the Second Rome, it was called, one of the five great leading churches of all of Christianity. Yet, after the translation of the entire area really into a, a Muslim majority, the Patriarchate has been in a bit of a tension, I suppose, and the current Turkish government don't actually want the patriarch to call himself ecumenical, meaning this having this world role, do they? The attitude of the Turkish government, as I understand it, is that the ecumenical patriarch is simply the patriarch of a small Greek minority church in Istanbul. Uh, they don't recognise his worldwide authority. One a challenge the ecumenical patriarch faces is the training of his own clergy because there was a famous seminary at Halki which was closed uh, by the Turkish government uh, on the pretext of all colleges being closed but it means there's nowhere to train clergy inside Turkey for his own uh, church. Now that is quite a problem that the ecumenical patriarch faces in terms of how orthodoxy deals with the state in Turkey, isn't it? It is a problem. The present ecumenical patriarch has repeatedly pleaded with the Turkish government that Halki should be reopened. And some Turkish politicians are in favour of that and understand the justice of his claim. But so far, nothing has been done. And this certainly has created problems for the ecumenical patriarchate, even though we have theological schools elsewhere, for example, in Holy Cross, Boston in the USA, and a smaller school in Australia. But it would be very great help if the school at Halki could be reopened. Well, the European Union has raised this issue over its negotiations when it was talking to Turkey about accession to the EU. And I think also the American government has raised this issue. It's a big issue and it's a well-known one, but probably not widely known among the public. It's uh, very true that the European Union and uh, America and other states have raised this matter with the Turkish authorities. And if Turkey would like to become a member of the European Union, then uh, the question of the way in which religious minorities are treated in Turkey needs to be considered. The question of Halki should be set in a wider context. In fact, the Holy and Great Council will not, in fact, meet in Constantinople itself, but it will meet in Crete because there there would be less likely to be interference and difficulties. Now, that touches upon part of the political tension too, doesn't it? Because of the uh, current tension between Russia and Turkey over the Ukraine and these other issues, it's virtually impossible for the Russian bishops to come into Constantinople and hence it's gone to Crete. Yes, and uh, the Church of Russia is the largest Orthodox Church in numbers, and though it takes only the fifth place in the order of priority of Orthodox Churches, yet the absence of the Church of Russia would be unthinkable. We could not have a Holy and Great Council without Russia. Why is it not going to be called an ecumenical council? Various reasons. First of all, the ecumenical councils were summoned to deal with questions of fundamental doctrine. 
the holy and great council will not be concerned with defining primary elements of our dogmatic and doctrinal faith. Like the nature of Jesus Christ or the nature of the Trinity, not these sorts of things. No. We shall be discussing more questions of the organization of the church, its ministry in the contemporary world. So that is the first thing that makes this council different. A further point is that in the ecumenical councils, all bishops of the Christian world were invited. Ah. In principle, an ecumenical council would represent the total hierarchy of the Christian church. Now, in the case of the Holy and Great Council, it was decided that to keep the council within reasonable limits, each of the 14 Orthodox churches would send only a delegation of 24 bishops, not all the bishops. So that makes it different from the Ecumenical Council. So in one sense, therefore, it's it's a consultation rather than a deliberative body. Is that what we're talking about? It is a body which will, I hope, make binding decisions. But all councils have to be accepted by the church at large. This will need to be received. Is this the sense, uh, uh, the what I think is a parallel in the Roman Catholic Communion, of the census fidelium, of the sense that the, the people, the clergy, must understand, accept and implement the decisions to sort of to effectively to validate them, to make them real? Yes. Uh, I would not use the word validate. I would say that the Christian people recognize that a particular gathering has expressed the mind of the church and therefore is to be considered ecumenical. But you are right, where the Roman Catholics speak of sensus fidelium, we Orthodox speak of the general conscience of the church. Uh, Can I ask, you mentioned binding decisions, uh, that you would hope there would be binding decisions. What do you anticipate Metropolitan Callistos might come out of this council? I see three main areas. The first is the organization of the so-called Orthodox Diaspora. That means the Orthodox churches in the Western world, Australia, uh, America, Western Europe, outside the traditional Orthodox countries. So the Greek communities, the Russian communities, the Macedonian communities, the Serbian communities, all these groups that are not in their homeland anymore, but somehow have to be governed Is that it? Now, what we have at the moment is multiple jurisdictions, many bishops in the same place. This is contrary to traditional Orthodox Church order. There should be one bishop in each place who has pastoral charge of all the Christians in that place. He may have assistant bishops under him, but we do not have multiple jurisdictions side by side. Therefore, the situation of the Orthodox diaspora is in some ways anomalous. That is one of the things we should discuss. How can we work towards a more visible expression of our unity in the Western world? A second area is Christian unity. What should be our attitude as Orthodox Christians towards our Western 
brothers and sisters, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Protestant. At Vatican II, the Roman Catholic Church laid down certain guidelines for work for Christian unity. But we have no such guidelines in the Orthodox Church, and it would help us very much if we could have. So I hope that the Holy and Great Council might take a good look at this, and that we could have a more agreed attitude towards other Christians. Now, a third area which the Holy and Great Council should be concerned with, I hope the Council will produce some kind of message to the world at large on questions of peace and human rights, a prophetic word. Just to see if I have understood those three points. First, first of all, in terms of the jurisdictions that you just mentioned, in Australia, for example, there'll be uh, there's a Greek Orthodox Archbishop. There are other assisting Greek bishops. Uh, there are uh, other uh, Serbian leaders. There are um, Romanian leaders. There are Russian Orthodox bishops. There, there's a complexity. Is what you're saying that in a place like Australia, the ideal would be to have one archbishop, not based on his nationality or language, and then other assisting bishops who might be from those national groups. Is that what you're talking about in, as one possible model of unity? Yes, just one local Orthodox church. And therefore, there would be an archbishop, there would be diocesan bishops under him. They would meet in a local synod, but they would all be integrated into a single local church meeting the pastoral needs of all the different nationalities. One Orthodox Church in Australia, one Orthodox Church in Great Britain. Now, as a first step, and this has already been done, we have established in all the different countries of the Western world episcopal committees where the bishops do meet and discuss together. Is this the equivalent of a Roman Catholic bishops' conference? Is that the sort of thing I you mean? suppose so. These local meetings of the bishops do not have mandatory power right. to make decisions that are obligatory upon everyone. So it's voluntary, in other words. It is consultation, exchange of views. But I would hope that slowly uh, these episcopal assemblies, as they are called, in each country would be strengthened, and that out of that would gradually grow a single Orthodox local church. I emphasize the word gradually. I do not expect this to happen immediately after the Great Council, but I trust that the Great Council will give impetus to these Episcopal assemblies and perhaps increase their powers. I mean, one practical thing, I and mean, this is fascinating to hear you describe it this way, but, uh, for example, Serbian congregations will use Serbian language. A Russian language will be used in Russian services. A Greek is used in Greek services. Part of this must rely, I, I presume, on deciding on a common language or, in fact, using the local language of a translated liturgy, say English in Australia or English in, a, in, in the UK, is that a, a practical thing that has to be wrestled with? Diversity of languages does not in itself create a difficulty. Uh -huh. We use the language of the people. And if the people have different languages, then we use different languages side by side. The same liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, but in the language locally used in the parish where I minister here in Oxford, 
uh, we use English, but also Greek and Slavonic and Romanian. Ah. And this does not create a difficulty. Uh, let me ask you a, a couple of questions which are about where the tensions are in the story. And I came across the patriarchal letter of uh, 1920, which came out from the Ecumenical Patriarch as I was researching this. And it, nearly a 100 years ago, called for a common date of Easter. And that issue, I think, has proven too difficult to discuss. It's off the table. But I wonder if you could help us understand why, because that's been floating around for about 100 years, that idea, hasn't it? It has. Almost all Orthodox keep Easter on the same date. I say almost all because in a few places, such as in the Church of Finland, the Orthodox do keep Easter on the Western date. Mm. Basically, behind this lies the question of the new calendar, known often as the Gregorian calendar, and the old calendar, known as the Julian calendar. The Greek churches keep Christmas on the 25th of December, but the Russian and Serbian churches keep it on the 7th of January, 13 days later, which they regard as the date of Christmas, the 25th, according to the Julian calendar. Ah. This discrepancy between the new and old calendar is not, I think, going to be discussed this year. You're on ABC Radio around Australia. Our guest in this hour is Metropolitan Kalistos Ware, perhaps uh, the most illustrious of the theologians and teachers of the Orthodox Church, um, based in Oxford and has been teaching and publishing on the subject of Orthodoxy for many, many decades. Uh, Bishop Kalistos, can I ask you a couple of other bits and pieces which will give us a sense of why this great synod, uh, this great meeting of bishops for the first time in over a thousand years of, of the Orthodox, should tweak our interest and should capture our attention. You've mentioned diaspora several times, but the orthodoxy has faced even more than simply simply migration. Communism rose and the Russian church was suppressed, other churches were suppressed. What we even see in modern Ukraine is partly a legacy of a 100 years of struggle, political struggle, and I wonder what are the real challenges that the Orthodox face politically with that, both the spread of its people, but also in the traditional areas which have now opened up and begun to develop again socially and economically. The situation in the Ukraine is very complex. There are a number of rival Orthodox churches mm. there, mm. but it is only the Orthodox Church of the Ukraine that is under the jurisdiction of the Patriarchate of Moscow, only that church is recognized by the Ecumenical Patriarchate and worldwide orthodoxy. We're talking about where the Russian church was founded, aren't we, in Kiev? This is yes. Where, this is where, the, where, the, where orthodoxy began to take root in Russia. That is right. The Church of Kiev is the mother church. It shows, though, I think, that the difficulty, that the political difficulty, the danger, the ongoing civil war, shows some of the stresses that Orthodox leaders need to deal with, though, doesn't it? Some of the very real stresses and challenges to the, to the Orthodox believers. Indeed. Uh, the church exists in a practical situation in different states, and therefore there's always been problems of how the church should relate to the political order. 
and in Ukraine, the people are deeply divided. So there are two other Orthodox churches with many thousands of members which are not recognized by worldwide orthodoxy, but they exist. And so there is a real need to work for reconciliation in this area. There is also in the Ukraine, I think, another uh, issue which has been a, a hot-button issue. That's the presence of the Catholic Church and, and the various tussles that have occurred over the centuries when one ruler was Catholic or a ruler was Orthodox and people changed allegiances uh, within the churches. Uh, I think the term which is used by the Orthodox sometimes is uniate, which is not actually liked by those churches, I know. But this is part of another tension, the mix between Orthodoxy and Catholicism and where those borders overlap in the Ukraine. You are right that within the Ukraine there is an Eastern Catholic Church. That is to say a church that is in full communion with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, and at the same time which is using the forms of worship that the Orthodox use. Like the Orthodox, it has married clergy. This church was suppressed under communism at a pseudo-synod held 50 years ago, 1946. A puppet synod by the communists, basically. That's right. Mm. And uh, so they were forcibly uh, united, though there continued to be Eastern Catholic Ukrainian church that existed underground, a church in the catacombs. With the fall of communism, the uh, Eastern Catholic Church of Ukraine revived and there were tensions with the Orthodox, which still continue. My own position would be, I believe in religious freedom and that if Ukrainian Christians wish to be in direct communion with the See of Rome, I respect their decision. I've seen some criticism of this uh, Holy and Great Council too. There's a Father Emmanuel Hatsidakis who's been writing on this quite disapprovingly and he said words to the effect that this Great Synod will spread the infectious disease of ecumenism to every corner of orthodoxy. Now they're harsh words. What is that sensitivity? Can you explain that to outsiders, to orthodoxy? People talk about the heresy of ecumenism, conservative orthodox. I'm never quite clear what they mean by that. But basically what lies behind all of this is a fear among conservative elements within the orthodox church that the Holy and Great Council will compromise the orthodox faith, that it will enter into an agreement with Western Christian communions, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, and that it will undermine the traditional claim of the Orthodox Church to be the true Church of Christ. Now, I think these fears are unrealistic. The ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew has no intention whatever to compromise orthodoxy. We have seen, though, Metropolitan Callistos, a most unusual thing, I think, since uh, the time of the Second Vatican Council when Athanagoras met with Paul VI, you skip forward to now, and Pope Francis and uh, His All Holiness Bartholomew, they're friends. They work together. And we, we had the site of uh, when Laudato Si, the document on the environment, was released. It was released by Orthodox bishops who were cooperating. 
this is sort of an unprecedented friendliness that is happening between orthodoxy and Catholicism, I, I would have thought. I agree with you. And uh, this greater friendliness brings great joy to me. Uh, surely, as Christians, we should recognize that though we are divided, yet we share very many things in common. The things that keep us apart are important and should not be glossed over. But let us work together, bearing in mind that we share so many things. And especially this is true of Orthodox and Catholics. Uh, the greatest difficulty here is how we understand the primacy and the infallibility of the Pope. Mm. But there is a huge area which we share together. Metropolitan Callistos, where you've lived a long life, how do you see the emergence of this holy and great council about to happen, but uh, probably only a dream for decades and decades and decades of your life? How does that make you feel? I'm very glad that the idea of a holy and great council has ceased to be simply a dream and is on the point of becoming a practical reality. I hope that this Holy and Great Council will be the first in a series of such meetings, perhaps every two or three years, in which gradually we will move towards solutions. We should not expect everything to happen at once. Metropolitan Kalistos Ware, it's been a great pleasure to have you on Sunday nights, such an eminent theologian and a great teacher of the Orthodox Church. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for asking me. This has been a podcast of Sunday Nights on ABC Local Radio. Thank you for listening.